0: Hello, I'm Sally Kornbluth, president of MIT, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to this MIT community podcast, Curiosity Unbounded. Since I arrived at MIT, I've been particularly inspired by talking with members of our faculty who recently earned tenure or who recently arrived here at MIT. Like their colleagues in every field here, they are pushing the boundaries of knowledge, their passion and their brilliance, their boundless curiosity, offer a wonderful glimpse of the future of MIT. Today, my guest is Joshua Bennett. Joshua is a professor of literature and distinguished chair of the humanities at MIT. He's also an accomplished author and performer who brings his poetry alive both for his students and for those who've experienced his performances. Joshua, I'm excited to talk to you today. Thank you for being here.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: You wear multiple hats here. You're a professor, you're an artist, you're a performer. Do you identify with one of those
1: more than the others? It's a great question. I mean, the professor part is the most recent sort of addition to my coterie of hats. I love that that image. That's great. But uh, I've been an artist my entire life. You know, my mother still has a uh, shoebox full of my poems from when I was four and five years old under her bed in her new home in Cortland Manor, New York. And when I was a little boy, my whole family would gather around me after church. I would improvise these sermons uh, for 30 to 40 minutes, and they would do the whole thing, the whole sort of congregational performance. They would say amen and clap and... It was kind of incredible. And and I knew from that stage, you know, that uh, I had a voice and I had a critical viewpoint uh, and that I could step out in the world and uh, perform and still come out on the other end alive, which is a pretty incredible lesson for a four-year-old. So what, what kind of
0: things were you opining on as a four-year-old? Oh, I mean,
1: Jonah was my favorite, I think, figure <laughs> from the biblical tradition. And I always loved whales and animals. I mean, my dissertation was on animals. And I realize now that that kind of bright line has always been there. So Jonah was a big one for me. Uh, Samson was big. And then Joshua, you know, my my, my namesake. The idea that, that music could break down walls, I thought was pretty incredible.
0: There you go. I always used to laugh at my own children doing very complicated skits together together yeah oh, that's or amazing. with their friends
1: wow. <laughs> so so same idea you sort of you manifest your traits very early on sure 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 and i mean my big sister taught me to read and she did that through a kind of dramatization right so my grandmother was a cosmetologist and so my sister would take wigs from her salon oh, wow. and we would <laughs> have the wigs and the costumes and the whole thing and that's how i entered literature you know was through performance and oh, so oh that's fantastic yeah that's always been a, a big part of my life the, the artistry
0: Looking at your website, your CV, your many, many accomplishments, what does success feel like for you? Do you feel like you're successful now?
1: Oh, wow. That's quite the second question. <laughs> like I feel successful. I feel like I've achieved most of what I set out to achieve professionally, actually, which is an incredible feeling. I just turned 35 over the weekend. But honestly... I think I measure success differently now as a father and as a community member. Um, I first came to MIT eight years ago as a Shass pre-doctoral fellow and uh, sort of just fallen in love with being here in Massachusetts and I'm trying to find new ways to contribute to the community. So I work with uh, the South Shore Conservatory, which does creative arts therapies with children, particularly children with disabilities. I love teaching here at MIT. My students, they sort of keep me on my toes and think of inventive ways to enter the classroom. But uh, yeah, I guess I'm measuring success differently these days in terms of how do I impact the people I love and the communities that they're a part of. My son is turning three, and I think as soon as he was born, I realized, oh yeah, he's part of a world full of children who have all sorts of dreams for the future that I have to help build. And so I think maybe in this next phase of my life, that's really what I'm trying to attend to the most is how to be successful in that realm of things.
0: Yeah, that's really great. Uh, You know, if you like that second question, here's one that you'll really like. Do you have failures that you're proud of or that impacted you or that changed your direction?
1: Oh, 100%. So the first time I got up at an open mic in college at the University of Pennsylvania, I completely forgot my poem. Oh, wow. Forgot the entire thing. I practiced it 100 times in the mirror. I got up. I maybe remembered the first two lines. And then I think I improvised maybe two or three <laughs> you more. You were
0: rewriting the poem in oh, real yeah. time. I just <laughs>
1: pretended that it was a haiku you know, the whole time and then I sat <laughs> down. And that taught me a great deal. One, that maybe I needed to actually run the poems hundreds of times in sort of everyday situations, right. which I have ever since. Wow. But it also taught me a sort of related lesson as to that lesson in, a, in the dining room when I was little, which is that uh, I didn't spontaneously combust. When I forgot the poem, right? right. right. I wasn't only as good as my best performance. And so in that way, that failure taught me that, okay, this is a part of my life, but it's not everything. And I don't have to measure my human value, I guess, against how good a particular performance goes. And so, you know, I'll perform at the White House about two years later, and I'm glad I had that lesson (laughs) before I got there. So yeah, that was an instructive failure for me, for sure.
0: Yeah, actually, speaking of that, that was Tamara's opus, correct, when you performed at the White House. And I did wonder watching it, how you remember all of your poetry. And it does sound like you just go through it and through it and through it.
1: Yeah. And what I tell my students who I teach performance is that if you can't do it in an everyday situation, you shouldn't necessarily bring it on stage. So if I can't recite a poem while I'm making breakfast, while oh, I'm in the shower, while I'm on a dog, then I don't put it on stage. you know. And I think that's been a really helpful lesson, thinking about the habits of your everyday life and just bring the poem into that. And if you right. can do a poem while you know, you're doing cartwheel, you're good.
0: Once you learn it, is it part of your library in your mind or do you have to You know, if you're going to perform the same poem two years later,
1: is it still in there? That's a great question. I mean, I've been on tour pretty consistently now for 15 years. And so there are old poems that I'll sometimes bring back into a show just to see if I've still got it. But even those, I run one or two times before I get on stage just because I think the moment you're too confident in it might be the moment you lose it. Maybe my parents put that in my head. I'll check in with them during family therapy this weekend. I like that. Yeah, I still practice as much as I can.
0: So when you did uh, perform Tamara's Opus, which was a piece, as I understand it, for your deaf sister at the White House, you used sign language in a way that punctuated the words and really added to the overall impact of the piece. And, you know, you have a deaf sister, and I understand your father was a stutterer. You've described him as a quiet man. So as a spoken word artist, how do these quiet, important people in your life actually impact your work?
1: They've taught me that there are many ways into human language. Do you know? Yeah, but, that's I mean, interesting. Both of my parents are uh, interpreters. They started the deaf ministry at our oh, wow. local church. wow! My father uh, hosted a Bible study at uh, the U.S. Postal Service for 40 years for both deaf and hearing people. And so I think my parents have always kind of taught me this idea that there are many ways to express oneself. Sometimes it's signs, sometimes it's symbols on the written page, and sometimes it's your voice. And that that voice can be a quiet voice, that voice can be a booming voice, but all of those voices and modes of expression are valuable. Um, Writing a children's book at the moment called The World is Full of Beautiful Quiet Things. And the whole premise is that you know there are so many quiet moments we take for granted maybe, like a handshake between friends, like the grass between our feet, the mountains. Uh, The world is full of quietness and it deserves to be cherished. So that was a major childhood lesson for me, that quietness is okay. We can meditate in quiet. We can learn in quiet. We can read quietly. But when it's time to sing or to shout, we can let that out too.
0: Wow. So you're also doing a children's book. So you're multi-talented. And I'm wondering, do you also do visual arts? Are Are you the artist of the book
1: or are you collaborating? I'm working with an illustrator, so it's coming out with Little Brown. I'm also writing a new nonfiction book with Little Brown, which maybe we can talk about a little later. But no, I mean, I started with drawing. So I drew, and I was an actor first, you know, and an occasional preacher. Yes. (laughs) But the the poetry came a little bit later, and I I got away from drawing. Maybe I should get back to it. But my students here at MIT, I think, would put me to shame. They're quite talented uh, visual artists, I found, actually. Yeah, there's some amazing,
0: amazing students here. It's really amazing. So talking about creativity... What's your opinion of AI-assisted creativity? People use or try to use ChatGPT to write poetry. They generate images that folks use in performance visuals, and I'm sure we'll see them in publication illustrations, et cetera. I'm just curious what you think of it, and, and have you come in contact with this at MIT? Because there's so many people that are specializing in AI.
1: Sure. I mean, I, I've thought quite a bit actually about AI and, and poetry in part because I've had mentors reach out to me that have had folks contact them and say, oh, well, now I can write a poem in your style in seconds, <laughs> right? And so I think there is this kind of understandable fear among some of the artist communities I'm a part of that there'll be a citation without payment, right? That right, the large language right. models are pulling from our poems on the internet and our YouTube videos in order to create these, these yes, poems yes. And, uh, and scripts and things like that. So I understand that fear, but at the same time, I, I do think that there's a... A really kind of radical potential, actually, for a human-centered AI practice where we can think about AI as an apprentice and collaborator uh, as opposed to as an adversary. So that's actually some of what I'm writing about now is thinking about the right to one's own voice in the age of AI and these kind of historical issues. Think about someone like Bessie Smith, who had songs sold by Columbia Records after her death that she wasn't paid for during her life. So in that case, the argument made was that her voice was kind of separate from her person. And I think in the age of AI, we need to actually think about how a voice is an inextricable part of one's personhood. So how do we negotiate that together and find ways to work with the AI to just enhance our reach, enhance our breath, and bring more people in rather than thinking about it as uh, an instrument of exclusion?
0: That's really interesting. And you know, as a side comment, your remarks on... What part of us do we have ownership of? Make me think of, you know, the recent uh, lawsuits and settled in favor of the plaintiffs on HeLa cells and renal cells. In other words, that are still being used that were derived, I believe, from a cervical cancer line, but they were her cells. And that seems to me no different from your voice, your ideas, et cetera. So that's really interesting. Is this the nonfiction work that you alluded to?
1: So the nonfiction book is called uh, The Orbit of Our Dreaming. And it's about sort of prodigious gifts and prodigies in the Black expressive tradition. So Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder, Phyllis Wheatley uh, uh-huh. from right here in Massachusetts. And I guess what I've been trying to think about is uh, on the one hand, how these sort of black communal institutions trained up students to think about giftedness in a very capacious way. So promise wasn't just a promissory note. It wasn't just what you could trade in on later to get a good job, but we all had gifts, right? That were worthy of celebration. That could manifest in you being a child preacher like Baldwin or a stellar vocalist like Aretha, or it could just manifest in you uh, being really good in that church play, you know, and everyone sort of standing up and and clapping for you. So I'm thinking about that. And then the second major argument of the book is that uh, there's a temporal constraint on prodigy that I think we should let go of. And uh, there are artists right. like Bill Trailer who... It wasn't until the eighties that he really started committing to visual art and then created, you know, fifteen hundred kind of stellar works of art in a row. And so I'm trying to think about that. How do we think about prodigious gifts across the course of one's life and maybe open it up a bit to say, well, there are prodigious gifts all around us? Maybe we should expand our version of giftedness so we can have a bigger beloved community.
0: Yeah, and there are people who, you know, have an inflection point in their lives that may be gifted in one arena and That's then right. suddenly completely
1: change modalities. That's right. And that there's this blurred line too, I think, between, um, you know, madness and virtuosity or yes, impairment yes. and brilliance, right? So I, I think too in the book about kind of artists on the autism spectrum yes, and yes. people like Alonzo Clemens who can just see a photograph and, and completely create an anatomically accurate sculpture. And he's, he's had that talent, you know, he's expressed it since he was a toddler and had a severe head injury. So thinking too about how tragedy becomes a kind of transcendent beauty in ways that we can track and learn from. So that, that's a lot of the new book. Oh, actually, that's interesting. Writing, yeah. yeah,
0: I remember actually when I was an undergraduate at Williams, the daughter of a faculty member who's now, you know, an adult, she's probably close to my age, named Jessie Park, who just was an exceptional artist. She was autistic, and I'm just still very taken by her art. i come sure. upon it years later, and it's just the detail and the precision that's part of the other aspects
1: of autism. That's right. It's just remarkable. It means a great deal to me. You know, my, my younger brother's on the autism spectrum. So growing up to this question of language, once again, and really seeing Levi's gifts manifest in all these different ways. So in the beginning, it wasn't speech. It was drums, right? And his knowledge for oh, uh, sort of memorizing the credits at the end of television shows, it just forces you to really reckon with both the opacity and breadth of the human mind. And to be patient. It changes the way you think about time. Yeah, right? Like, that's okay, very he's not talking now, but maybe he will later, and maybe we don't see his strengths here, but we see it over here. We just have to look a lot closer. So that's a lot of what the book is about. What would it mean to be more patient with ourselves and with our precious children in order to create a world that has more room for all of us to thrive?
0: So how does that impact your teaching in the classroom sure. and how you tr- sort of treat your individual students? Because presumably, you know, in your area, there's a, obviously a lot more room for individual creativity That's right. in the classroom than there might be in Especially at the introductory level, in an area where students really are just learning the principles, learning the facts, later they may be able to you know riff variations on the theme. But I would assume from the very beginning you're seeing all sorts of manifestations of creativity in your students.
1: oh sure, so any student who's ever taken a college class with me has written poetry because I set aside about five to seven minutes at the beginning of each session for us to write from a shared prompt. You don't have to share it out, it's not graded, but you spend time sort of. I don't know, away from the velocity of of everyday campus life. And you just have to sit with your thoughts, you know, and you write from the perspective of a number two pencil or a rain cloud or a rhinoceros and you find yourself in that imaginative space. And so that's one way. But also, I think during office hours, I've really been taken aback by how many of my students sort of confess to being an artist and talk about this real tension that they feel between the job that'll pay the bills (laughs) that they're well set up for here at MIT and these these often prodigious gifts, I mean, these incredible talents that they have in other arenas and how they negotiate that, you know, and, and that's been a question, I think, of my own life, not in quite the same way. Um, but my mother, I think, always reassured me that, um, sorry, you're taking me back to this, this one moment. I was up for this job uh, that I didn't get. And my mom said, don't worry about it, honey. You can always come back home and uh, work at the post office with us.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And I think about that a lot. In part because she pushed me so hard in school my whole life. And I thought, well, ma, if I could have came back to the post office, why'd I do all this? Right. But on the other hand, it was that um it wasn't about a dominant vision of excellence. Right. She just right. thought I liked school a lot. So she right. said, Okay, well, we're gonna send you to the best schools you get into and you're gonna work really hard because that effect. has its its own merits. But it wasn't about social cachet. Yeah. It wasn't about elite status, right? It was about her son pursuing his gifts, you know, and uh, living a certain kind of life. And so I think with my individual students, I've tried to just share that sort of lesson mm-hmm. with them. It's like, you're not reducible to your grades or the job you get after MIT. We're here to explore, I think. That's why I'm here. <laughs> this is yeah. why I'm not doing something else.
0: Right? I mean, that's a really important lesson for all of our students because obviously getting into MIT, many of them have been climbing and climbing and that's climbing right. their whole lives. And, you know, they get here and we want them to grow personally and intellectually, and to really reap all the benefits of being an MIT student without always feeling like you got to keep your eye on the prize. That's right. And so I think it's an important lesson. Yeah. One of the courses you teach here at MIT is called Reading Poetry, Social Poetics. And I also know that you're involved in this new African Diaspora Studies program. And I'm wondering what social function you think about poetry serving for African Americans, both historically and
1: now. Oh, you asked this question at the perfect time. So with my colleague at Harvard, Jesse McCarthy, we edit a book series for Penguin Classics called Minor Notes. And essentially what we're doing is going back in time to dig in the crates and find sort of minor poets uh-huh, in uh-huh, the very black interesting. poetic tradition. And that's part and parcel of what I want to bring here to MIT. I think we have such incredibly talented students, faculty, and staff here. And I'm trying to just reach back into history and say, well, what are these voices we can recover who haven't been held up, right? Who besides, you know, Dunbar, Langston Hughes, Gwendolyn Brooks, Mm -hmm. we know some of their names. But what about, you know, George Moses Horton, you know, Angelina Weld Grimke? These poets we're coming back to now and finding that they had incredible work and incredible stories. I mean, George Moses Horton was enslaved. He was on the campus of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And uh, he composed these poems in his head. He never wrote down anything. And he would just stand out there. And we talk about spoken word, right? He was out there sort of proclaiming these poems every day. And they eventually, you know, got written down into collections, including a book, you know, titled Naked Genius, which I think about. I mean, in the 19th century, Naked Genius as as the the title, you know, of a book written by an enslaved black person in in America. And so part of what's been on my mind, you know, here in both teaching, uh, reading poetry, social poetics, but also thinking about the African Diaspora Studies program here that we're trying to build, is how can we look to history to shape our vision of a more capacious future, right? What sort of moral, ethical, and our practical lessons do we gain from folks like Horton, folks like Angelina Weld Grimke, you know, a queer black woman who was also a high school teacher and very invested in her students and wrote a beautiful poem for Dunbar High School, you know, which was a remarkable kind of educational institution in black history. That's really what I'm trying to get at every week in the classroom, you know, because my students are brilliant, but many of them have not had, you know, African-American history at any point. In their careers, right, as high school students before they get here. Many of them don't know, you know, the Black national anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. Whereas for me, I knew that before I knew the Star Spangled Banner. Interesting. You know, yeah. I didn't know the Star Spangled Banner until I was five or six years old because I went to this uh, mostly Black independent school in Harlem called the Modern School. Uh. And the woman who founded it, Mildred Johnson, her uncle and her father had co written Lift Every Voice and Sing together. So that's a gift I try to share with my students whenever I can.
0: Well, that's okay, because, you know, all the four- and five-year-olds in this country mangle all the words to the same anyway. Man, right? No, anyway. that's exactly right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no, yeah. that's really interesting. So, I mean, you talk about thinking back to your poems in the shoebox, et cetera. Do you have any recollection of either why you got, were interested in poetry or really, as you were getting older, how you continued to develop that? Because that's not, you know, the pastime of your typical, like, 10-year-old boy.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I think I was always trying to find language to express the world that was in my head. I think that's part of the reason people turn to poetry now. That's why we turn to poetry when people get married, when people die, and uh, when children are born. It's because there are words beyond the words we have readily available to us that we nonetheless need. And I had that sense as a very young person. You know, Part of it was I grew up around poetry. You know, I grew up around Motown and gospel. And these preachers who just were 50 feet tall to me. You know, and they would talk in these just beautiful tones about the the grass and the trees clapping their hands and the mountains and the idea that the infinite was out there and that it spoke back to us. I mean, I was riveted by this, even as a four or five-year-old. And my dad, you know, who's quite quiet, was a deacon, but he wasn't quiet when he would pray. And so even seeing that that modal shift was very interesting. My dad would pray, people would cry. You know, they would come up to him after church and say, you know, Deacon Bennett, that prayer really moved me. And that took me aback. I said, this guy barely talks. know, <laughs> We're at home, you know, quiet Southern man from Alabama. But there's something that comes upon him when he has to enter this other rhetorical form. And I think I just thought, well, I want something like that. If words can do that, if they can do what preachers do and what my father does and what my big sister does when she sings in the alto section, then I have to pursue that. And I think that just stuck to me for my whole life.
0: You know, it's interesting in listening to and actually watching your performance, the distinction between reading poetry on the page sure. versus hearing it, to me, is pretty stark. I think that the oral performance really brings poetry to life. And do you write differently differently? when you think about your writing for performance, as opposed to something that you think will primarily be on the written
1: page? Or or do
0: you have that?
1: Yeah. Oh, I do. Yeah. I mean, I think of them as different technologies in a way, theoretically, Mm -hmm. and also just my process is so different. It feels like different parts of my brain. I leave different kind of space for play on the page and in performance, because in performance, you can't see it. You can't see the words. And so yes. I often switch the words out. So if you see a, a kind of printed copy of any of my poems that I pull out in my spoken word shows, it'll look different from what you're probably going to hear on stage, because I often improvise. You I know, see. I'll change two whole lines, maybe even given the day, given what's worked earlier in the show. I try to treat it like this sort of dynamic entity, because more fun that way. You know, you do poetry like this for 15 years. You got to find space, I think, to riff a little bit and to improvise. It's more fun. And on the page, you're having a private experience, right, that you're describing. You hear it differently in your mind. And so I'm trying to bury sort of different Easter eggs there for people to track down and follow. And the form is different often. The words are usually a bit longer. You know, I I think I'm a bit less polysyllabic on the stage just because it's it's not as much fun. It it takes longer. Right. Right.
0: You've already told us all these things you're doing professionally, your service to the community. You've got your family. I hate to ask what you do in your free time because you may not have any free time, but <laughs>
1: it's running out quickly. Yeah, too, I was gonna say, a, do you have do you have way. hobbies our listeners should know about? Yeah, sure, sure. I still love to run. I have a, a colleague now, Tevin, who's a professional basketball player in Italy and we hoop once a week, oh, which wow. has been a lot of fun. Yeah, he just comes out to suburban Massachusetts and we play basketball. You know, for an hour and a half every week, which is a lot of fun. Honestly, catching up with my sister, you know, and just talking about what we're dreaming about uh, at a given moment, what we're working on. We've had that practice uh, for as long as I can remember. No, that's you know, lovely. Ever since, yeah, she was sort of translating my toddler uh, Esperanto, you know, back <laughs> yeah. when I was young. Ever since then, we've we've had that practice, so that's good. Play Madden, video games are, are very calming for me, and uh, hang out with my wife Pam and watch Love Island. You know, that's that's <laughs> a lot of fun too. Perfect. So the, yeah, those are my practices outside of work.
0: So I hate to put you on the spot, but I'm wondering, I'm sure that our listeners would love to hear just a few lines of something you're
1: working on now. Oh, sure, sure. I can pull something out. Let me see. I can read you one of the, the poems from my most recent book of poetry, which was all about becoming a dad. Oh, fantastic. And uh, how, I mean, you asked me what I was working on. I was not working on anything <laughs> yeah. for about Sleep six months. Sleep deprivation you on. You know on. it. You know it. Six months in a row. And Yeah, this should take about a minute, if that's perfect, okay. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, so this is dad poem, The New Temporality. No poems, not even one, since the minute you were born. Now I live the thing that was the writing, more intensely, alongside you each day. Hours blur and are measured only in feedings, naps just quick enough to not subtract from your later dreaming. Mom and I divide the night into shifts. Dance through the fog of sleep deficits, doctors say we won't feel the weight of until winter time. So what? Our home glows like a field of rushes, moonlight ensnared in their flaxen heads. Most early mornings with you are mine. We play the elevator game and improvise lyrics rhyming August with raucous, florist, flawless. As I write this, you rest in a graphite gray carrier on my chest, Your thinking adorned with language that obeys no order my calcified mind can express. Tomorrow, I will do the thing where I make my voice sound like a trombone, and I hope you like it as much as you did today. There is no sorrow I can easily recall. I have consecrated my life.
0: Oh, that is wonderful. Thank you. That gives lovely insight into the kind of work you do and translating your kind of emotional experience into something that the reader or audience can see. It's wonderful. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this conversation (laughs) hugely. And I really am grateful for your time. And I'm looking forward to seeing your spoken word work going forward. Oh, thank
1: you so much. I appreciate that a ton.
0: Fantastic. This is awesome. And to our audience, I'd love to hear what you think of these podcasts and what you'd like to hear next. Please send any suggestions you have to podcasts at MIT.edu or message at MIT on any social media platforms. I look forward to hearing from all of you. And thank you all again for listening to Curiosity Unbounded. I very much hope you'll join us again. I'm Sally Kornbluth. Stay curious.